Physics World. Hello, and welcome to the Physics World Weekly Podcast. I'm Hamish Johnston. Later in this episode, I'll be chatting about the physics of babies with the author of a new book that looks at the science of conception and the crucial first 1,000 days in the development of a child. But first, I meet a scientist who explores the universe using instruments that are sent aloft on high-altitude balloons. The Extreme Universe Space Observatory on a Super Pressure Balloon 2 mission will be launched later this year, carrying instruments that will observe neutrinos and ultra-high-energy cosmic rays. I'm joined down the line from the University of Chicago by the astrophysicist Angela Alinto, who is the principal investigator of the mission. Hi, Angela. Welcome to the podcast. Hi, Hamish. A pleasure to be here. So, Angela, can you can you give us a, a brief overview of, of the mission? Sure. So we are very excited that we right now have all the pieces of UZO, as we call it, to make it life easier. Uh, uh, SPB stands for Super Pressure Balloon, which is a system that NASA developed to try to fly telescopes and other instrumentation on a floating uh, super-pressurized balloon and would stay at 33 kilometers in altitude for hopefully 100 days. It's something that NASA is developing, and UZO is one of the few missions that have been taking advantage of the development side of this uh, new technology or new um, platform from, from NASA. We are doing our second flight uh, this spring of 2023. That's uh, when we're hoping to fly. We are now uh, our... We've done the tests of all the instruments, which means that we actually put the telescopes together, uh, do a test at a NASA center, uh, and then after the test is, is completed, we take it all apart, put it in boxes, and off it goes to New Zealand. So right now, we are about to, to uh, board a ship to go to New Zealand, and we should be getting to New Zealand, meaning the pieces of our telescope, in February 2023. Uh, in April 2023 is when we're ready to fly, and hopefully we get launched between April and May. And, and what's the significance of New Zealand, Angela? Is it because you want to be in the Southern Hemisphere, or are the atmospheric conditions right there? Yes, that's the, the wonderful thing about the super-pressure balloon uh, platform that NASA's development, developing, is that, you know, we have uh, you can fly from many parts in balloons from many parts of of the earth but suppose you wanted to fly for 100 days in the northern hemisphere uh, and if you know about winds at 33 kilometers they have these very regular patterns uh, that go in circles around both poles now if you want to do it in the northern hemisphere you'll be crossing all uh, kinds of countries uh, without much control of where your balloon is going and that might not be welcomed by some countries, let's put it that way. Right, uh, uh, yeah, especially, <laughs> I can think of a few countries yeah, at the moment exactly. that might not welcome so it. So if you, if you are in the Southern Ocean, then you have very few countries that you need to get permissions to fly overhead. In our case, the plan is to be launched from New Zealand, and we would be going in circles around uh, the Antarctic continent. Uh, and we, um, our observing does not need the Antarctic continent itself because there's ballooning done in the Antarctic continent also. And some of that is uh, you know, done through McMurdo and then it also circles. We want to circle for 100 days and that would be easier done from New Zealand. Uh, and basically, you know, we could 
go over Chile, Argentina, South Africa, but in Australia and not many other places. So that's really wonderful because one could go around uh, in you know weeks as opposed to 100 days, uh, the, you know, depending on the winds. But in principle, you could do a few circles around. And so not having too many countries to get permission to fly over is very helpful to us. And also background uh, light, right? So being on the ocean, we have very little background light. So it's a very we use the dark. I can uh, explain what exactly we do, but that's uh, the reason for New Zealand. And for us, uh, the researchers, it's a wonderful place to go because it's beautiful. <laughs> <laughs> right. So yeah, I envy you, especially in February with a um, with a blizzard coming in off 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 Lake Michigan. New Zealand sounds yes. like a <laughs> like a, a paradise. <laughs> and and so the the mission is going to observe neutrinos and ultra high energy cosmic rays. What what are the benefits of observing these particles using a balloon borne instrument or instruments rather than something that's based on the ground or a bit higher up on a spacecraft? Yeah. So um, Uzo is so the name Uzo Extreme Universe Space Observatory is an older name that is. Um, Part of a collaboration that today we call the Joint Experiment Missions, uh, so JAM UZO. And the history of UZO is to um, try to look at ultra high energy cosmic rays from space. The first design was to put a, a, a basically a telescope in the space station looking for fluorescence that is generated by ultra high energy cosmic rays. And the advantage of going to space versus to be on the ground is that you can observe more atmosphere at the same time. Uh, the leading uh, experiments in ultra energy cosmic ray space are the Auger Observatory in Argentina and the Telescope Array in Utah. And those two are large ground arrays, the largest being um, Auger with 3,000 square kilometers. And so the next order of magnitude in, in the ultra energy cosmic ray space uh, will need, you know, 30,000, 100,000 square kilometers. It's pretty hard to do. Uh, it's not necessarily more expensive. Actually, it's more expensive to go to space, but it is hard to basically have that kind of land and to monitor and to have you know people um, going along uh, to deploy such large, large, large networks. So if you can do the same kind of science from space, you can put one telescope or two telescopes, which we prefer, uh, in space. Uh, and the reason we like two is because you could do stereo vision, stereo vision of ultra energy cosmic ray showers. The way we observe ultra energy cosmic ray showers from space or even on the ground, uh, in the ground you have two techniques. You can actually detect the particles on the ground or you can detect fluorescence light of the shower as it develops in the atmosphere. When you go to space, you only use the fluorescence technique because you're not collecting the particles, you're actually seeing the light produced by these showers. And these showers, you know, they go for hundreds of kilometers and they are the ultraviolet light moving. So it's a, like an ultraviolet light bulb moving at the speed of light. So if you put a telescope in space, you can see those, um, those showers being developed from above as opposed to to from the earth that you see them uh, coming down. Um, so the idea is to put two telescopes in space. So the, the new design for the, the mission we are preparing for is called POEMA, uh, which stands for Probe of um, Multi-Messenger, Extreme Multi-Messenger Astrophysics. Not even I remember, and I came up with this much easier uh, acronym <laughs> because it stands for poem in, in Portuguese, uh, which is uh, my uh, original language. But anyway, uh, Poema is the mission we are preparing for, which was designed to have two telescopes 
to do this stereo vision of ultra high energy cosmic ray showers with the fluorescence technique. So one of the telescopes in USO SPB2 is a fluorescence telescope designed by the USO collaboration over decades of improving this type of technique. Uh, we use a uh, reflector and a camera which takes pictures every microsecond. And it's a multi-anode PMT, very large camera that can see these showers very precisely. And that's what we're doing in USO SPB2 is to fly that system and show that it works and that we can see ultra high energy cosmic rays. So it will be the first time we see ultra, ultra high energy cosmic rays from above, not in you know uh, orbital space, but suborbital space. And that will check the box that we can do this in space because we haven't proven that uh, thus far. The other telescope, so SPB2 has two telescopes, one for the ultra energy cosmic rays with the, with the fluorescence technique, and the other looking for neutrinos using the Sharenkov technique. So, instead, so the same um, uh, effect, which is showers, so every very high energy particle that hits our atmosphere will produce a shower. It could be a shower that's coming down, like the ultra energy cosmic rays, or in the case of neutrinos, it could be an upward going shower from the ground. Uh, and the way to look at upward going shower from space, uh, because they're coming upwards, it's easier to actually catch them as they're coming up and hitting your telescope, as opposed to seeing in the, fluores the fluorescence technique, what we see is basically scattered light in the atmosphere. So it's isotropic emission. Sharenkov is very pointed towards uh, the telescope. So we basically point the telescope below the limb of the earth and we can see showers coming from the ground, basically upper going showers by uh, pointing the telescope uh, on, you know, below the limb of the earth. And for that, um, we can, in principle, see uh, PV neutrinos that cross the earth, um, the, say, tau neutrinos coming from the other side of the earth from, say, a black hole, some faraway place, uh, will um, traverse the earth produce a tau lepton, the tau lepton will decay on its way out and will generate a shower that comes from the ground. And that's the only way we know to produce showers coming from the ground. So this telescope that we designed again, so it's a, refract, uh, a, a reflector, so mirrors, uh, but now instead of uh, one microsecond like the fluorescence technique, here we are using silicon PM camera and the, we take pictures every 10 nanoseconds, so a lot faster. And so the you know triggering is is quite challenging because we have way too much information and we have to downlink just information we want. So it's it's a, a wonderful um, new thing that we're doing. This is the first time that the Sharenkov technique uh, will be used uh, in in a balloon or in space. And uh, so that there is Sharenkov uh, being used for gamma ray observations on the ground. We are doing a similar technique, but now from uh, space and looking at uh, showers coming from the ground, which would be a neutrino signature. And so the way we will test the technique is to look above the limb and see Sharenkov light coming from cosmic rays that we know are there. And then once we, we can prove to the, to the world that we can see the cosmic rays, we look down and look for neutrinos. Now, neutrinos are tough to predict exactly where they're going to come from, from which um, different um, object in the sky. So what we will do is follow targets of opportunity. One of my favorite is binary neutron star coalescence. And so we would like to be flying when LIGO turns on so that we can follow up any of those uh, LIGO events. 
Oh, and eventually when Vera Rubin turns on in 24, we would like to be flying SPB3. <laughs> so uh, that's uh, the technique for, for looking for neutrinos, and, and it is a target of opportunity. So really looking at different directions and trying to see neutrinos produced by events that we can see other um, information from, for example, gravitational waves or uh, gamma rays or some other form of electromagnetic radiation. And, and Angela, you, you spoke about you, you spoken quite a bit about um, signals that are coming up from the ground. I, I understand that one of the things that you hope to look into is uh, sort of a mysterious um, observation that was made by the balloon-borne ANITA experiments. Um, I'm, I'm pretty sure that's something that we've covered in, in physics world um, as well as sort of a, a genuine mystery. Uh, c can you talk a bit about what Anita saw and how you and your colleagues might be able to shed further light on, uh, on the measurements that it made? Right. So Anita is a wonderful experiment looking also for neutrinos. Uh, and they see cosmic rays, uh, but the goal, again, is neutrinos. And ANITA is another balloon-borne experiment. The difference between ANITA and user SPB2 is that ANITA uses radio emission, and it does fly from McMurdo, so around the Antarctic continent, and it looks at the ice because it wants to see the Ascarian effect, which very, very high energy, so much higher than PV on the EV scale neutrinos should be producing this Ascarian effect. So that's the, that was the ANITA goal. Uh, but they also see cosmic rays. So they were looking for the extreme energy um, uh, uh, neutrinos and they saw extreme energy cosmic rays, which we know exists. So, but that is a wonderful piece of ANITA's project to show that they can actually see uh, cosmic rays. So the the way they do this is through radio emission, and they have an interesting um, way of trying to find out if the event is coming from, you know, if it's coming from above or from below. And uh, the ice uh, has this reflective uh, surface, and so that changes the polarity of, of each of the events. So given their uh, last data uh, analysis, they see what we call anatons sometimes, which are these events which are hard to explain. And basically, what they look like is events coming upwards as opposed to downwards, but uh, at angles that would be a bit too steep, right? So when we design SPB2, we want to look just below the limb because neutrinos at very, very extreme energies, they will not cross the whole Earth. They will only cross sort of the skimming of the Earth. Uh, at the So this is at PEVs and 10 PEVs. But when you get to EVs, then really they have to be coming very close to um, you know, just really touching the earth, not c crossing through. What they see was is consistent with the neutrino coming uh, upwards, but really through most of the earth, which is something that the standard model would not allow. So speculations is a new particle or changes on the, on the um, standard model uh, interactions. And so in principle, we could see the same type of Anita events and we will look for them. Uh, the easiest way for us is actually with the fluorescence technique, uh, however, Auger has already tried to find uh, Anita events and already put limits on them. So it is something that it's still not very clear. Why would Anita see it and not Auger? Uh, one thing that will be is being built here at Chicago also, and the PI is Abby Verig, my colleague, is a super duper Anita, which is called Pueo, uh, and that will fly in 24. And it will definitely see, an, you know, you will use the exact same technique, but in you know, much more powerful um, 
way. And it should see uh, if these Anita events, if they are particular to radio. Uh, and it may be that it is something that happens on the ice. It might be something to do with the reflections in the ice and not the standard model being broken. But we will know for sure with POEO with the exact same type of measurements. We are a complementary measurement. So if it shows up in our data, then that will be much more exciting in the sense that it will also be seen in the optical uh, as opposed to in the radio. And that will make us believe it even more, right? That it isn't something to do with the ice. So I, I think Pueyo will, you know, check if Anita can see, if those events can be seen more often uh, and they would still be in the, on the ice. Uh, and we will check if they can be produced in the ocean or, you know, if it is really a particle coming up, it should be the same. Uh, but, you know, that's... Uh, it is something we will be investigating for sure. But from the ground detectors, there's already some challenges, right? So it's, look, it's looking unlikely that, but you never know. You need to do more measurements to figure it out, which is the whole point, right? We, we can't do one technique for one type of thing only. It's really good to have complementary techniques. Oh, that sounds really interesting. I look forward to uh, to, to to seeing your results. Um, now, now, now you've been you've been talking about making these measurements, and um, I suppose you know somebody might be fooled into thinking that it's a, it's an easy thing to put a detector up in a balloon and send it off around the world a few times. I'd imagine that's not the case. What are the what are the challenges? Uh, uh, the main challenges of designing your instruments so that they can actually go up in a balloon and, and work and, and, and send you data that's meaningful. So the one wonderful thing about a balloon is that it is cheaper than going to space. So you can, um, you know, bring the technology to the its limit. <laughs> uh, you, you know, for, for something like what we just, you know, we just finished building it and we're going to, you know, fly in a few months, right? Uh, if you were trying to do it in in space, you would have to have finished it years ago and be testing like crazy because it's too too expensive to shoot something into space that doesn't work, right? So we have been doing some tests. Uh, we, we took some of our telescopes to the field, but it, the real test is flying because when you do it on the ground, you can, you know, number one, there's the atmosphere to cool your equipment. So if you can imagine some, a system that's taking pictures every 10 nanoseconds, cooling it is not trivial. And also, so there are two challenges. One is that you can't, uh, well, three challenges. One, you can't plug anything into electricity. So you have to get, you know, a really nice power system, but that's done with solar panels. We're okay there. Number two is the thermal piece, which is what space uh, is challenging in general, is that you have to find uh, thermal coolings that are not the tradition. You, you can't use a fan, <laughs> uh, which, you know, we can on the ground. And then uh, the third issue is downlink of data, right? Because we can't, uh, we have on board a lot more data than we bring down uh, because, you know, we can't just take the, the hard drive with all the wonderful gigabytes that we generate. So we need to be very smart about how to prioritize and bring data down. And so in the sense of, um, being very similar to space is the physics part of, of the experiment is very much in physics and computation and, and communications part. Uh, the piece that is not like space is that we can still do things that are really fresh off the oven, right? So we, we just finished this new camera, uh, which has never flown before. And so exactly this is the first step is to fly it on a balloon, show that it works. There will be a, a small a small set mission that will fly a similar camera 
uh, in a couple of years, I think 2025 is the target uh, from the Italian space agency, ASI, um, which is very, very much like the USO SPV2, uh, it's called Terzina, and that will be doing it in space. But what we're all trying to do together, both Tertina and Uso, is to reach the poema level, which is to really have a mission. Uh, and so our dream is to have a mission that will basically monitor for years every neutrino source out there through the Sherenkov technique. And at the you know between monitoring one gravitational wave and the next or one uh, transient event and the next, we would be doing the ultra energy cosmic ray mapping on both hemispheres at 10 to the 20 electron volts. So it's a, a two different uh, goals. Uh, one is the 10 to the 20 electron volts, the you know 100, 10 to 100 uh, EV uh, uh, cosmic rays, which are really hard to map uh, on the ground because of the the low fluxes. So we need a huge volume of the atmosphere. And the neutrinos follow up using this um, PEV to 10 PEV, so lower energy by comparison, uh, window, which is a good window for, for example, binary neutron star coalescence and other events. Uh, and so my dream is to have uh, light curves of neutrinos from sources we uh, understand well enough, both to understand better the inside of the sources, because the astrophysics that neutrinos tell you about is different than the one that the photons tell you about, but also eventually have so many neutrinos from these sources that you can actually do neutrino physics at these energies, which are very hard to imagine doing on Earth. And and when the mission is over, are you are you able to recover the the instruments and the data, or do they just fall into the ocean never to be seen again? Plan A is to recover it. Um, so NASA tries its best because you know once it's flying, they make decisions about. I mean, we can decide uh, you know if we want to finish before they decide, but when they decide to finish, <laughs> they finish. Uh, and uh, so we are hoping to, uh, and that's their plan is to land us somewhere on land. So it could be Australia, New Zealand is hard to hit again, but you know Chile uh, and Argentina are, are easy, easier places to fly over. So uh, the idea is that you then, there's the balloon comes, the balloon is the size of a football field. Uh, the World Cup just finished. So <laughs> uh, I'm, I'm all about football, the, the European version uh, versus the American version. But anyway, it, this is the size of the balloon. And uh, there is a parachute and then our instrument. And once the mission is over, they detach the balloon and the parachute brings our payload down. I don't think mirrors and most of the, the metal will survive, but we hope to recover the data. So we would definitely want to go back uh, to uh, rescue what's left of our, um, our payload. And we would go together with, with NASA, wherever it is, um, and try to recover some more of the, the data files and whatever is left of the payload. Right. But, but, some, of, but some of the data is, is being downloaded. All the time. At, right. Yeah. Continuously. Yeah. yeah. Let me tell you one other option, right? So just on the or previous question, it could be that the, the, the balloon has trouble. So user SPB2, the number two is because there was a one. And the one was in 2017, and this, we launched the balloon. I mean, NASA launched the balloon, uh, and in April of 2017. And as soon as the launch went up, they noticed that there was a problem. So there was something that malfunctioned on the launch, and the balloon started leaking. So we basically had a 12-day mission instead of the 100-day that we were hoping for. 
and uh, the balloon was not very stable. So we got some data, but not enough because it was coming up and down, up and down. So it was not, it's, it's supposed to be at a constant altitude. So NASA told us, unfortunately, we can't continue with the mission. And the best thing to do when it's out of our control, when we can't control the balloon very well, is and the ballast is, is ending, is to bring it down in the, the ocean. And then we don't, you know, they basically want us to go to the deep down so they don't even try to open the parachute or anything. It's really to dive down, a splash down. And so that's that happened to our first mission. We got enough data to know that everything was working well, but not enough uh, good data to be able to actually produce the, the, the science results that we were hoping for. So this time is going to be for hopefully we will have much longer uh, mission and we will be able to get really good data. But that can happen, a splashdown. And the idea there is to really sink the payload and the balloon uh, to the bottom of the ocean so it doesn't disturb the, the folks on the surface of the ocean. So that is usually not the outcome we look for, but that's what happened to us in, in that SBB one. <laughs> <laughs> okay. So, so I suppose this is the second um, mission that you're working on. Um, in this area, what what are you looking forward to in the future? What um, yeah, what, what will you we, be doing after this mission? As soon as we launch, uh, I we will. I mean, maybe as soon as some of our people are, have a little breathing room, uh, we will be designing um, what I will call SPB three for now, um, and that would be a this just a, so. The fluorescence telescope, we have two telescopes. Uh, one of them, hopefully, if we have a good flight, we will be done, meaning that we know that the fluorescence can be measured and the technique is ready for space. The other one, the Sharankov uh, technique, is the first time. So the, the, the fluorescence, we've been doing this for, for decades now. So I think we would be happy to say we, we show the, that it's ready for space. The other one, uh, the Sharankov one, we could do an improvement, which is to have um, basically more freedom to point all over the sort of um, the earth, let's, the below the limb uh, part. And so, and we could do it a little faster. So we didn't design it to be a fast uh, turning around and pointing at different sources, which is one thing we can do for the next uh, round. So as soon as this is launching, we'll be planning on the SPB3, which would be the Sharankov technique that we hope to prove it works. And But now we can actually be an observatory for neutrinos so that we could follow many uh, sources. Because for that, we need to make things turn around with more precision faster. And we are using, um, we control the altitude, but the azimuth is controlled by the NASA balloon. And that's a little bit slow compared to what you could design. But given that we are doing two telescopes, that we are at our limit of mass, for this kind of mission. Uh, so we could make it lighter and a little faster. And that's what we're uh, planning for the next one. And then, you know, this is all to do the actual uh, space mission also, which we uh, have designed and it's ready to go once the, te the technology is shown. So, And and what's that space mission called? Is it a, a NASA mission or an ESA yeah. mission so or both? Yeah, POEMA is the name, uh, the acronym, which stands again for Probe of Extreme Multimessenger Astrophysics. And um, it, the probe part of the name um, comes from a type of mission that NASA has, which is just below the flagship uh, level. So flagship is like JWST. A probe is like uh, WMAP, for example, right? So the, the that probe category for the, the Astro 2020, which is a uh, prioritization effort in the U.S. for NASA missions 
there was a call to design probe class missions and 10 of them were selected and one of them was Poema. So we did the conceptual design and uh, that identified these, these technologies that needed to be developed. And so once these are developed in the balloon uh, system, we can in principle then build the actual probe class mission. So I'm thinking by the end of the decade, we should be ready to be uh, designing the, the actual, with the, the technology ready for space um, version of Poema. And then we can have an actual two telescopes looking down for, both for neutrinos and for the ultra energy cosmic rays, but you know, an order of magnitude more powerful. Right. Oh, that sounds really exciting. Thank, thanks, Angela. Thanks for coming on the podcast and, and talking about your research. And, and good luck with the launch in New Zealand. Thank you so much. Uh, and it was a pleasure to meet you. <laughs> the Surprising Physics of Babies, How We're Improving Our Understanding of Human Reproduction is the title of a new feature article on the Physics World website. It was written by our news editor, Michael Banks, who's also just published a book called The Secret Science of Baby. Michael joins me down the line to chat about the physics of babies. Hi, Michael. Welcome to the podcast. Hi, Hamish. So, Michael, what is it that first interested you about the physics of baby? What inspired you to write the secret science of baby and and the future article as well. Yeah, well, this probably won't come as a surprise, but it, it, my interest really kind of kicked off um, when my wife and I were expecting our first child, which is about kind of eight years ago now. Um, and as anyone who is kind of a parent or, or carry will know, kind of when you're expecting, you know, a child or you have a child, you kind of enter this kind of whole new world, you know, you've mostly have sleepless nights and changing lots of nappies, et cetera. Uh, yeah, I'm, I'm breaking into a cold sweat about this, <laughs> remembering <laughs> 15 years ago. Oh, no, uh, 18 years ago, I suppose, for us was the last time we had to go through that. But, yeah, I know what you mean. Yeah, yeah exactly. So this kind of whole new world opens up to you. And it's one that you kind of might not really have paid much attention to before. But it was kind of one that I became really fascinated into, you know, how at this kind of moment of conception, you know, how that can nine months later can lead to this kind of you know, screaming baby that, you know, suddenly appears, um, you know, I just found utterly fascinating. And, you know, so I delved into lots of books about it and um, lots of things about what happens during those nine months, etc. But a lot of it, a lot of what I found was kind of like what was actually happening itself. You know, it wasn't so much about kind of how this was actually happening or what kind of, what any of the kind of physical processes that are happening during that time. And that's when then I began to, you know, investigate that a little bit. So I began to kind of, you know, investigate where mathematicians, physicists um, and engineers are kind of looking into some of these, uh, some of these topics, you know, that to do with conception, to do with conception or, um, you know, preg the pregnancy itself and, you know, also kind of like birth and other issues like that. And and when I when I kind of started, I expected that a lot of it would be kind of, you know, bits on the side. So, you know, you might have some kind of condensed matter physicist who, was doing, you know, did a little bit of a side project on this kind of thing. But I actually found the opposite, really, that that this was actually kind of a, a major area of research for lots of people who, you know, really were dedicated to this. And that's when I then thought, well, actually, you know, this sounds kind of really interesting to go into. And that's where the kind of then the idea um, for the book kind of really came about. Wow. So you found a whole, a whole community of baby physicists out there <laughs> that you didn't know existed before. <laughs> 
<laughs> yeah, that's right. Yeah, you could say you could say it like that. And, and so, Michael, the, the article that you've written for Physics World, it looks at three important things that happen in the first 1,000 days after conception. And this is a period that's, that's seen as crucial in the development of a child. And you start right at the very beginning with a look at the, the fluid dynamics of how sperm swim. So, so what, what are the physics that underpin uh, the, the swimming of sperm? Are, are, there, are they similar to the physics um, that, uh, that, that, that goes on when, when you or me go for a dip in the pool? Or is it a very different microscopic world for, for sperm? Yeah, that's right. So, yeah, so the book actually looks through the, as you mentioned, the first thousand days. So that's actually kind of from conception itself um, until the until the baby is, say, you know, around two or two and a half years years old. Um, and yeah, so that kind of moment of conception itself, you know, how that kind of happens is kind of really interesting area of research and, and kind of a, a very kind of active area of research today, actually, still. Um, and I kind of like it kind of like goes back way until the first discovery of sperm itself, you know, which was um, in the 16 mid 1600s, when a Dutch scientist called Antoni van Leeuwenhoek, he kind of was the first to image. So he, he used his very powerful microscope at the time to kind of take the first kind of images of sperm. So he was kind of one of the first people to kind of delve into this microscopic world. And kind of how 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 sperm swim, um, you know, something that's kind of only been really figured out in the last kind of 50 years or so. Yeah, so some of the first clues about kind of how a sperm could swim were kind of done in the 1800s. So in 1880, um, an Irish physicist called Osborne Reynolds, <clears throat> he was working at Owens College, which was later reconstituted as the University of Manchester. But he was to kind of studying um, the flow of fluids in kind of p pipes and how that kind of, um, what kind of some of the phys physics is going on in that. And he then came up with, this, after all kind of these different experiments, he came up with this kind of a, quite a simple um, ratio, which is called the Reynolds number, which is basically the inertial forces of an object in a, in a, in a flow of liquid divided by the viscous uh, forces that are involved kind of from the fluid itself. And so for uh, going back now to where, you know, as you mentioned, you know, what it's, how is it different from us kind of, for example, swimming in, in water, for example. So the Reynolds number for, for if we were going to have a dip in, dip in the water and go for a swim would be quite high. Um, we're kind of like large objects. And, and this means that then the inertial forces are dominant. Which I guess from I mean, every, everyday experience, that's what you kind of have, you know, you kind of move your arms to propel yourself and you can easily kind of um, move in the water itself. But but things for uh, sperm are much different. And given they're microscopic and kind of the complex fluids that they are swimming in, this means that the it's the viscous forces that actually dominate. And this is kind of like a very strange kind of world in some sense. It's kind of like almost like a quantum world. It's kind of very different from our kind of everyday experiences. But this is kind of the difficulty they have then is trying to then propel themselves through the through the fluid, given that the viscous forces of the fluid dominate over the inertial forces that they can kind of generate. Um, so that was kind of uh, outlined then in the 1800s. But then it was actually in the 1950s when kind of the physics of that came about. And that was some researchers in the UK who um, kind of did some calculations about what happens when a sperm kind of whips its tail. And they discovered a thing that was happening then, which was basically called, um, it's called oblique motion. 
And they calculated this kind of oblique motion at different parts of the sperm's tail. And then this resulted in um, what they deemed as like viscous propulsion. So that's kind of a very simple kind of explanation of how actually sperm are able to propel themselves in these complex fluids, which which they then um, they kind of have to travel through um, through the female reproductive system. So the kind of physics is actually kind of yeah very very different from what our kind of everyday experiences. But you could also ask yourself, well, you know, what what kind of use does this have? You know, that you know, knowing how a sperm swims, well, yeah, great. But some people today are taking these models much further, much more complex models. And then they're kind of using them uh, for, for fertility investigations. So at the moment, um, kind of sperm analysis is usually done by looking at the head, for example, and kind of a little bit about motility and how it moves. But these researchers instead, they think actually that it's the tail that actually is the key factor here. And so they are then modeling, using their mathematical models to then uh, model the kind of the swimming of the tail itself. And then they're kind of using that then to to deduce like how how efficient the swimming is um, and, and other kind of key parameters. And then that could potentially um, result in kind of a different a different way of kind of doing fertility investigations in the future. For example, IVF and uh, things like that are, are very kind of um, <clears throat> are very costly. And um, they're also very invasive as well. Um, but maybe through looking at the sperm in more, a more different way, uh, maybe other techniques such as, such as IUI, for example, in which kind of the sperm are injected um, straight into the uterus, uh, maybe that could be equally as good as kind of a much more invasive uh, techniques such as IVF. And and after conception, um, of course, we, we, we think of the fetus growing um, inside the womb. But um, well, I suppose what people don't often think about is the placenta, which is a, a, a very, very important organ, I think, if I can call it that. And, and you describe it as a life-giving alien within and I think that's because it, it's actually an extension of the fetus and it provides it with oxygen and nutrients and, and removes waste. So, so what sort of physics um, is going on within the placenta? I mean, I would imagine it's a, an amazing uh, sort of uh, structure with lots of surfaces and, uh, and, uh, and things that are optimized for this exchange. Is that right? Yeah, that's right. Yeah, so the, the physics actually is quite of the percentage is actually quite complex in itself and it's, it's far from being understood you know even even today but the percentage is like really kind of fascinating as you mentioned the fascinating organ because when my second child was born i actually had a kind of i wanted to really make sure i had a really good look at the percenta because i it, during the first born i never actually saw it it was kind of whisked away <laughs> very mm. quickly and i never actually saw it but yeah i kind of made sure during this uh, for our second child that i would i definitely got a good look at it and it's kind of it was kind of like the it, after it was bought after it kind of um you know kind of came came through it kind of like looked like it's kind of very in, incredibly strange kind of organ in itself it's kind of like a the, the size of a the size of a kind of dinner plate um it's about 20 centimeters kind of in diameter um a few centimeters kind of thick um but it kind of like looked like this kind of incredibly alien thing but also it's as you mentioned you know it's also incredibly important in that in that it you know it's responsible for uh, the diffusion of different gases to and from um the fetus and so basically um, how it actually works is basically through, through diffusion through, uh, from the 
um, the kind of feet, the maternal blood then through into the uh, fetal blood. But then how this ha- actually happens is actually really complicated. And that's due to the kind of different uh, scales that the placenta works on. And so there are some researchers um, at the University of Manchester, for example, who are kind of looking at kind of a bit more kind of the mathematically modeling the placenta and kind of trying to analyze these different scales that are involved. So basically the uh, the fetal vessels are incredibly small on the scale of micrometers, but how that kind of then affects what is a centimeter-sized organ. Um, and they came up with this kind of, um, it's similar actually to what I was talking to about before in terms of the Reynolds number, but this is called the down caller number instead. And they basically think that this, this number um, can kind of describe how different um, gases can kind of transfer to and from um, the placenta. I mean, the physics is actually kind of quite complicated. And as I mentioned, it's not really kind of fully understood. But one thing they did find out was that it seems that oxygen in some sense is kind of, um, that the placenta itself is kind of um, quite efficient at, at, at transferring oxygen to and from the um, from the fetus, and the, and that, of course that was what you would kind of expect because you know oxygen is such an important um, uh, gas that needs to be transferred. So, um, but there's a lot more work that needs to be done in terms of you know understanding the the placenta itself. But also, what needs to be much better understood as well is how the placenta and the uterus kind of combine and kind of, in some sense, kind of work together as well. That's not that's something that's only very recently being kind of understood at the moment, because um, of course the the uh, placental cells they invade the uterus at the, at the kind of beginnings of pregnancy, for example, and that kind of key uh, dynamic between the uterus and the placenta is, is something that. Um, definitely is being kind of looked at at the moment and and new things are kind of coming out about that all the time and and so fast forwarding a, a bit further into the into the life of a, of a child um after birth uh, the development of speech is something that's that's very important and it's also something that you look at in your physics world article and you talk about um uh, some researchers who have modeled speech development as a tree-like structure that behaves in a, in a, in a thermodynamic manner, complete with phase transitions. How, how does that offer a description of how speech develops in a, in a young child? Yes, I need to probably add a huge caveat here in that, um, you know, how an infant actually kind of um, can understand grammar and also language in just in general is actually kind of a very um it's a it's a, a topic that's being kind of debated still and it's and there's lots of kind of different competing theories that's even among like linguists for example about how infants learn language it's it's um it's a topic that's kind of you know can can generate heated debate <laughs> um but it's also kind of one that you know physicists can can add to as well and this is in terms of yeah, if you so all languages can or majority of languages can be can be described as being the context free context free grammar, um, and this basically the explanation is that is that a sentence for example can result in a tree like structure, so you can kind of split it off in its constitu- constituent parts, um, kind of noun phrases, verb phrases, and then you can kind of. Uh, split them off further and that results in kind of this tree-like structure and because of that kind of tree-like structure you can then apply the tools of physics 
And this is what some researchers have done, kind of using um, kind of network theory and also kind of, you know, the physics like thermodynamics, for example, uh, to kind of understand what's going on. So the idea is that as a infant kind of listens um, to people speaking, for example, then they are basically kind of acting to kind of, if you imagine this whole kind of language structure as like a tree, um, you know, with all this kind of network of sentences and leaves and et cetera, branches and leaves, um, then they are basically kind of pruning that as they listen to language over time. Um, and basically people then have modeled this kind of, you know, pruning as time goes on and what, ha- what kind of happens. And some researchers find that actually at kind of a certain time, this kind of pruning results in kind of almost like a, it's analogous to a kind of phase transition in thermodynamics where at at one particular time, everything kind of makes sense and it all kind of locks into place. It's kind of like a crystallization or something mm. similar to that. Um, and that's what they kind of found that, you know, an infant will kind of like prune those kind of, le- prune those kind of branches away and then all of a sudden it will kind of make sense. And and that's kind of what, in some respects, that's kind of what you see in real life. You know, there's kind of this kind of magical time um, when the infant's around two and a half where all of a sudden, you know, they kind of may have been talking a few words and a few kind of, you know, you know, a few couple of words together, for example. But then all the, all of a sudden, they kind of like are, are creating these grammatically correct sentences, and that's kind of a, a, an area of research where you know linguists are really kind of keen to learn more about it because it happens so quickly. It's so hard to kind of study, and this kind of these kind of you know theories may go, may go some way to kind of explaining actually what potentially what's what's going on in, in that. Um, so yeah, maybe a lot of people wouldn't have imagined that you know the theory of phase transitions can have something to say possibly about how infants um, learn language. Yeah, it's amazing, really, isn't it? So, so those are the the three sort of subject areas that you cover in your physics world article. But there's much, much more about the science of babies in your book. Um, can you give us a little taster of, uh, of of some of the other topics that you've covered? Yes, I mean, as as I mentioned, kind of like you know those first thousand days. So it, it starts at conception itself, but then it moves all the way. Actually, the kind of last chapter is about language itself. But there's a lot in between. You know, when you're talking about the how the kind of the uterus uh, contracts, how those contractions can then propagate through the whole kind of um, through the whole organ. Um, another kind of one of the, I think one of the best examples that I I have in the book is about how um, that kind of first breath that the infant takes. Um, just you know, just after kind of when it's born, you know, that's also when the placenta's kind of done its job, and then the infant is you know taking that first breath uh, to, to breathe. And this is actually um, how, actually kind of what was happening in there is actually kind of steeped in physics itself and kind of the explanation of what's going on as, as a you know per, a great kind of physical connection. And this kind of delves back back in the, the 1950s when, at the time, for a premature baby, for example. A lot of um, it was almost life. It, life and death was almost kind of a lottery for premature babies. And you know, some would be born, and then they would have difficulties breathing. Some would then, you know, go on t- to be fine and have no issues. But then some also would then unfortunately die. And at the time, it was a real kind of um, you know, doctors were dumbstruck about what was actually happening. But the actual reasoning for why some babies struggle to breathe. Um, was to do with actually kind of the lungs themselves and the alveoli in the lungs and what was kind of going on in terms of the physics there. So some people kind of modeled the alveoli as kind of 
a uh, kind of like a spherical bubble, really. Um, and that's kind of the, the physics of that is kind of like the young Laplace equation. And some people then understood that actually by looking at the, the, the physics of the alveoli, um, it's potentially kind of issues that were to do with kind of surface tension, high surface tension in the lung that were, that were the problem. And one way to lower surface tension, what we, what we know is the use of surfactants, um, which is actually incredibly controversial at the time that there, were, that there could be surfactants in the lung. Um, but then basically then, you know, to cut a long story short, then people discovered um, that surfactants were in the lung and then they reduced um, surface tension. And that, that was then why uh, some premature babies struggled to breathe because they just didn't have enough surfactant in the lung. That then led to medical treatments, for example, um, kind of surfactant replacement therapy where surfactant is kind of injected into the lung itself. So basically from this, you know, going from this kind of young Laplace equation <laughs> and then all the way, um, you know, to modern day treatments today, you know, that was kind of the explanation that for that is all kind of purely, um, purely physics, really. Um, so that was kind of, I think that's kind of like one of the best examples in the book of, you know, what, of how uh, physics is, you know, really improving uh, treatments today, actually, um, when it comes to newborns. And what about sort of locomotion, getting around? Do you look at things like crawling or or walking? I'm, I'm guessing there's some physics in there. Is it is it interesting physics? Yeah, there's some interest in physics about kind of um, it's a little bit kind of bordering on on neuroscience as well, a little bit in terms of how locomotion is generated. Um, but there's kind of interesting um, physics about kind of how uh, when an infant can kind of starts to starts to walk. Um, you know what kind of some of the some of the processes is going on in terms of how it can actually manage to kind of do those kind of first bumbling steps, and then all of a sudden actually learn to properly walk with a kind of a, a proper kind of gait, um, as what we ha- kind of have now. Um, so some of that kind of yeah, there is a, there's a chapter on there that kind of examines some of those uh, kind of issues as well. Well, that's great, Michael. Thanks. Thanks for talking about that. Um, Michael's article um, about the physics of babies can be found on the Physics World website. Just look for the headline, The Surprising Physics of Babies, How We're Improving Our Understanding of Human Reproduction. And you can find a link in that article to Michael's book, which is called Science of Baby, The Surprising Physics of Creating a Human from Conception to Birth and Beyond. And the book is published by Ben Bella Books. Thanks for being on the podcast, Michael. Thanks, Hamish. I'm afraid that's all the time we have for this week's podcast. Thanks to Angela Olinto and Michael Banks for joining me this week. And a special thanks to our producer, Fred Isles. The podcast will be back again next week when I chat about the bottom-up design of molecular-based qubit systems with the chemist Dana Friedman. Physics World.